I'd like to welcome to the podcast Jackie Pipers. So um, you are a clinical nutritionist and you also have your um, Bachelor in Health Science in Nutritional Medicine, is that correct? Yeah, Nutritional Medicine, yeah. yeah. Awesome, so exciting. So I really wanted to have you on the podcast because I've been following you on social media and, I mean, we've touched base really briefly. We went to uni, like, what, for two seconds? We did a bit of... Yeah, it was, like, two sessions. I think. Like, literally two seconds. Um, but, yeah, we did meet through there, which was great because I was able to link up with all your social media and I've been following you along since then. Um, and I do feel like your the way that you approach your work and the way that you approach nutrition is, like, really closely aligned with the way that, um, like, kind of the ethos of my business in terms of just keeping things really simple um, and you're giving people really, um, really, really good information that just makes sense. So I thought you'd be great to chat about um, quite a few things on here. I'm excited. Yeah. Um, Where to begin? So, I mean, firstly, I would love to know what do you do kind of day to day? You work with clients mostly. Is that what you're mainly doing at the moment? Yeah, so I was working at a health food store, but now I've basically quit all of that and I'm working full-time for myself. So yeah, see clients and do nutrition consults as a full-time job now, just at home online. Yeah, amazing. And what do you find with your clients that you're mostly dealing with? Is it kind of an array of things or have you found that there's certain things that you keep kind of coming up against and you're dealing with a lot with your clients? So... It's definitely an array of things, but majority of the conditions that I deal with are usually to do with women's hormone health. So Mm -hmm. I deal a lot with uh, period problems, endometriosis, PCOS, irregular periods, all that sort of stuff. And then mostly gut health on top of that as well, which also can tie into a lot of mental health things too. But I mean, majority of things that I am treating, whether they initially come to me for gut help or not will usually always stem back to the gut because the gut is such a major driving factor in majority of conditions. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think I'm going through a couple things personally at the moment and working with someone with nutrition and things like that. But I think the the thing is, is that we almost like underplay nutrition a lot is what I've come to learn and what I see in like the mass when I'm looking at information. There's not Surprisingly, I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, you're the one who's gone and studied all this and your your hands are in it every day, but I do feel like there's not a whole lot of information. Like if you're thinking about like stress and anxiety and how it relates to like what you're eating, you really, you have to look, like you really have to go and look and find some papers and stuff like that. Like it's not common knowledge. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I feel like majority of those sorts of things, they're very compartmentalized in the medical field, meaning they'll look at mental health as a separate issue um, and they'll look at repro, like reproductive health as a separate issue. Yeah. Um, but they won't realize that you need to kind of tie everything together because everything within the body works so holistically and one, you know, body system will affect another. Yeah, yeah. It, it's very interesting. I feel like slowly, like, I mean, people look, coming to that understanding that the body works holistically because I just keep hearing stories over and over again. Like they go to traditional like Western medicine and they're just get, end up being on a lot of medication. For example, the pill, which I really want to touch on with you. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah. And then people are like, okay, I'm good for a little while. And then of course, because we haven't, you know, treated the body in a holistic way, everything kind of comes back and we're back to square one. So, I mean, to, to, 
bring things back to skin, I guess. I'd love to know, well, just in general hormonal health, what your thoughts are kind of on the contraceptive pill because I've seen you do a couple reels and stuff like that. And I know that the pill isn't great, but, I mean, in layman's terms, which you do so well, could you explain what your kind of thoughts are on the contraceptive pill and its outcomes on the body? Yes, I could probably talk about this for a while, but I mean, like you said, if you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I do have a fairly strong stance on the pill. Yes. But I also just want to kind of emphasize that it's not my role and I'm not trying to tell women that they shouldn't be on the pill and to not go on it, but it's more, I guess, my role to explain all the disadvantages with the pill because I feel like that's what's missing when it's prescribed. Mm -hmm. And I'm not anti-birth control, but I'm pro-education and informed choice. Yeah. Like I said, women just aren't really getting that. Mm -hmm. And with the pill, it's extremely popular. So it's, you know, one of the most prescribed contraceptions out there. And I understand why it is because it's effective and it's easy and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But it's also super popular because it's, it's just basically because of the habitual prescribing by GPs. So GPs have a standard of care. And for hormonal problems, you know, you might go there with acne or irregular periods, their standard of care for that is the pill. So that's why it's prescribed so much. So there are basically two types of oral contraceptive pills. There's the combined pill, which includes synthetic forms of estrogen and progesterone. Mm -hmm. And the other is the mini pill, which just contains progesterone. So basically what the pill is doing is it's providing the body with these synthetic hormones and it basically shuts down the communication between the brain and the ovaries. Mm. So basically inhibiting that signal for the ovaries to mature and release an egg. Ultimately it prevents ovulation because ovulation is what creates a baby and obviously the pill is stopping you from having a baby. Yeah. Without ovulation, the ovaries aren't producing their normal amounts of hormones. So they're not producing the normal amount of estrogen, and they're not producing the normal amount of progesterone. Yeah. We aren't really told, I mean, I know I wasn't in high school and just in sex ed, how important Mm. ovulation is for women and how important these natural hormones are for our bodies. So every month when we make estrogen, that promotes muscle gain, insulin sensitivity, long-term health of bones, the brain, the cardiovascular system, And progesterone reduces inflammation, regulates the immune system, supports the thyroid, um, brain, bones, breast tissue, all of that. So basically the pill just shuts down our hormonal system. And while it's giving us hormones, the hormones are synthetic and they're not the same as the real thing. And they actually have a lot of unwanted side effects, which isn't spoken about when you go to get the pill from the doctor. Yeah, no, not at all. No, no, never spoken about. It's it's really huge. Like it impacts so many systems. And like just hearing you talk about, it, I'm like, whoa. Like I cannot believe that it's so commonly. I mean, I can, but you know, at the same time, I'm like, I can't. Like it's like it's quite bewildering. It's it's very interesting. And I mean, I guess we touched on a lot of this stuff isn't spoken about. We're not taught about these things. So that's where that's like a huge issue you know and I think even with nutrition as well and I I know you touch on this in um the information that you share as well but I think even okay our reproductive system may be a little bit complex but even like down to nutrition like we're not even taught about 
really, I wouldn't say. Um, and there's so many misconceptions out, out there about nutrition. So it's like, it's really like everyone's kind of like out here just doing their own thing, really. Like, so that's why it's so important that I think, you know, platforms like yours are, are great. Um, yeah. Just you- basic things as well, like women. A lot of women that I speak to, they don't even realize that the withdrawal bleed that they're getting um, when they're on the pill is not actually a real menstrual bleed. Like there's actually no medical reason for you to have a bleed on the pill. And originally the pill was created and basically created to give you this period so that it would seem more normal to the women taking it which is so messed. I just think crazy. And then you've got to look at all, like, you know, I'm talking about, the, you know, I say there's heaps of disadvantages, but then it's like, okay, what are the disadvantages of the pill? And yeah. the length of disadvantages, some of them, like, so interesting. Yeah. Um, I just feel like women should be given a pamphlet showcasing all of the information. You know, yes, you've got benefits, like, you know, it's not invasive, it's accessible, um, it can you know, you'll know when you're going to get a period if you decide to have that bleed. But then the disadvantages, you know, nutrient deficiencies, blood clots, weight gain, depression, anxiety, lowered libido, just all of these different things. It's just crazy. Huge. And I feel like people are actually, I've heard, I heard there was this study done that women who, like, it actually affects their ability to choose uh, an appropriate mate and a rest and I was yeah. like, oh, no, that's insane. Can you touch on that? Do you know, you, I'm assuming you know about that kind of Yeah, thing. so I think it was a 2010 study, so it was a while ago, but it basically concluded that compared to normal cycling women, meaning women that ovulate, pill users basically showed uh, a weaker preference, I think it was, for facial and vocal masculinity and it basically found that pill users were more attracted to men that were genetically similar which actually is a negative thing whereas the opposite preference um, had been reported in non-pill users and they were showing that it not only influenced women's mate preference but her final mate choice and it can actually cause an issue with being able to fall pregnant and then the divorce rates were a lot higher as well because just naturally um and i guess like with pheromones and all of that sort of stuff biochemically you can kind of pick out your mate based on when they're ovulating and like the pheromones that you'll release with that and the pill kind of because it totally shuts off your hormonal system it really interferes with that i guess sexual preference part of things which is huge which is so huge and it's like that kind of goes into so many so 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 many other things like i think it just I mean, I don't know. I don't want to like, I don't want to generalize. I feel like a lot of um, people are kind of waking up to these kinds of things, but it just shows like, you know, as a society as a whole, like I feel like we're so shut off and from, from these things, like we've stopped looking at things holistically and everything's on this two dimensional thing. It's like, no, it's not just you take a pill and now you stop getting pregnant. Like there's consequences to everything. And it's like, we need to like look at ourselves as like, not to sound cliche, but like a part of nature. It's like you can't just feel something and then it's like, you know, there's no consequences to that. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting. And I remember when I was on the pill, it really affected my hormones. And I think I was I was feeling really down. I was feeling really depressed, which I know is like quite common. And I remember I went to the GP and she prescribed me antidepressants. And yeah. I just was like, 
wait, what? Like, that's insane. That's insane. So what? I'm going to be on antidepressants for the rest of my life. And there's nothing, you know, wrong with antidepressants if you, if you need them, but it's, that wasn't really something I needed. It was like an, a, you know, a side effect that I was dealing with from the pill. So, yeah. And that's generally what happens in the standard, I guess, medical world is that you'll go to the doctor with an issue, say acne or um, period pain, and then you'll get prescribed a medication to put a bandaid over that issue. And then when you have that medication, then you usually get side effects from that medication. Then you get another medication for that one and then another medication for that one. And if you had just gotten to the root cause of why the initial problem was happening, then you would just basically avoid all of that. Yeah, it's it's insane. It's insane. And I guess um, touching on that, like touching on medication and things like that, I did want to ask you about supplementation because mm-hmm. I think – there is so much misinformation out there, like so much information to the point where I'm kind of like, I'm not going to take any supplements because I'm like, it all seems like a lot of hoo-ha. Like there is a handful of supplements that I do kind of take for my sleep and my, like to keep my nerves calm and stuff like that. But um, I just think it's like really interesting to me. Like I feel like companies left, right and center are coming out with you know, these supplements and they're branding them all beautifully. And I'm like, wait, hang yeah. on, shouldn't there be like some regulation on like who can come out with these things? Like, you know, what yeah. should, do you ever recommend your clients to be on supplements and things like that? So with my clients, I mean, I do get asked this question quite a lot in terms of what supplements should I take? People ask me what supplements I take, what's good and what's bad. There are a lot of really shit supplements out there um, with really, I guess, poor forms of vitamins and minerals that aren't absorbed quite well. And you'll usually find that it's more of the really inexpensive supplements that are like that. But in regards to what people should and shouldn't take, it's so individual. Yeah. Depending on what the person, what the health of the person is. So I guess as a general-ish standard across the board, I usually do prescribe a magnesium supplement for most of my clients because magnesium is just one of those things that I feel like everyone is deficient in. Mm -hmm. So once, once again, the pill actually depletes us of magnesium. So if you've been on the pill, you're very likely deficient in that. But just our lifestyles today really kind of deplete our magnesium, stress depletes our magnesium, drinking depletes our magnesium, Medications, like I said, the pill depletes our magnesium. It's really hard to get a decent amount of magnesium in our food and our soil's quite depleted in that as well. So it just seems like that's, I guess, across the board, something that most people generally do need. Yeah. Um, But other than that, it's just very, very person dependent. But it's also why there, you know, there's so many options out there. You go to a health food store, you go to Coles and Woolworths, you go to Chemist Warehouse and the shelves are just full of supplements. And it's basically just guessing what you need and in what dose and in what form. That's why I always recommend to go see someone that's well-versed in vitamins, minerals, herbs, Mm -hmm. all of that sort of thing so that you can actually get a recommendation based on your individual health issues rather than just guessing and hoping that whatever you pull off the shelf is going to help your problem. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um, You know, in regards to our soil not being like, does it not have like enough nutrients in it, I guess, for our food, would you say? Like what? what's... Yeah, 
I mean, it depends on geographically where you're getting your food from, where the farms are, how nutrient dense uh, the soil is and how it's being farmed. So, for example, um, if you're purchasing organic produce from a farm that is focusing on regenerative farming, then that's going to be a lot more nutrient dense than, say, for example, if you're purchasing fruit and veg from areas that are monocropping, because obviously if you're monocropping, you're basically, that means you're planting the same thing in the soil over and over and over again, and you're not having animals basically like cows shit on the land is basically, you know, what they're doing and then they're remineralizing the soil. But if you're just monocropping, you're depleting the soil. And I think some of the research, I remember I listened to a really interesting climate change kind of podcast but they're saying that if we continue to monocrop, the soil that we have is only going to be viable for about 50 or 60 more years, yeah, which is insane. Like, it's insane. And I think <laughs> constantly monocropping the land, they then kind of genetically modify the mm. plants to make up for the lack of nutrients that it yeah. gets from the soil, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's kind of wild because I think, you know, I think there's this whole thing about do we genetically modify, do we not genetically modify, and I guess, I don't know, we can, I don't know how much to get into that, but I don't know how much I even know about it. But, I mean, I guess there's, you know, some pros and cons to whatever, genetically modifying our food or whatever, but I guess the point is just to be mindful of what you're buying, okay, like genetically modified or not, like just at least have that, like, understanding of what it is that you're purchasing. Yeah, and I think I would just bring it back to basics. Just make sure that what you're purchasing and consuming is as close to natural as possible and how nature intended would be my biggest recommendation for all of that sort of stuff. Because while I don't think there's huge amounts of research in regards to GMO being super bad, but... It hasn't been around for long enough to really understand exactly what that's doing to us. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, it's kind of like I feel like we're in a very transitional phase in, like, our timeline that we're just, like, waiting for things to happen. Like, we're predicting all these things and it's like, you know, what about, like, our water, our soil, um, our food supply? Um, Very interesting. And I guess while we're on soil... um, I want to know, so I've been drinking tap water for a very long time. I honestly have, and I was like, oh, whatever, like, you know, with this filter thing, like, seriously, stop it. But I've recently just started only drinking filtered water because I'm I'm freaking myself out. So I don't know, what's the, give me the lowdown on filtered and non-filtered water. Yeah, so, I mean, we do in Australia, we have a really good quality water source that comes through our tap. Meaning, you know, if you compare that to other areas of the world, our our drinking water is one of the cleanest that you can get. But we have huge amounts of chemicals within our water, chlorine as one of them. Sometimes, I mean, I notice it a lot. And generally, if you speak to someone who's been drinking filtered water for years and then tries to drink tap water, it smells like a swimming pool to most people that do that, which it does to me. So you've got to take into account what all of these chemicals are doing to our gut microbiome is probably one of the biggest things. But then there's also been research um, to show that certain medications like the oral contraceptive pill have been found in the water supply 
um, and just, you know, you've got to think of runoff of pesticides and heavy metals and a bunch of other stuff that really should be filtered out from the water supply. And I use a filter at home. Getting pure spring water can also be really good depending on kind of what location you're getting it from. But it's just another way that you can reduce your toxin exposure if you try your best to kind of filter out some of these things. Wow, very interesting. Do you have clients coming to you that you um, – I read um, in this book she's, she's um, she wrote a book on like how to eat your weight like good health and she was talking about toxins in the body and how to know if you're like um, sensitive to toxins like and it even went down into like mental health like having a short attention span and like all these things. Do you like deal with any aspects of that with your clients? Like, Yeah. If there's um, potential for heavy metal toxicity, which can be quite common, you can do like a hair mineral analysis test to kind of determine that. And then you'd have to look to where potentially they're getting the source of the heavy metals from and then work on a detox protocol once you've kind of eliminated the source. But then also you've got to look at a major thing that's been happening throughout Australia recently with all the rain and the floods is mold toxin exposure which has been huge and that can cause a lot of knock-on health effects especially if you are still around the mold that's been growing that's one of the biggest things at the moment i would say in terms of toxin exposure is mold yeah mold is huge mold is huge and i would actually be so common and i think it, it does affect your mental health if you have a lot of exposure to mold like I've heard like brain fog like you know inability to remember things um what are some other symptoms that you, you are familiar with in terms basically of- everything it can affect everything because if you're exposed to mold mold basically releases these mycotoxins and they'll go into the bloodstream and they can cross the blood brain barrier and they can basically cause any health issue but a lot of people will break out in skin rashes hives a lot of like you said lots of brain fog major cognitive impairments joint pain fatigue just heaps of stuff it's insane i think like if you think about all these different elements that affect us like it just makes you feel so like small as a human you're like oh my god like there's so many like constant things that could really come into play with our overall health like it's not just what if you really think about it enough and you're like conscious of your body like there's so many so many things that so many things and so many things that we're constantly exposed to on a daily basis in terms of toxins like Mm. we were talking about mold heavy metals um all our cleaning products air pollution glyphosate in our food just you know which is a massive um herbicide just everything basically yeah, interesting. Um, on that note, I know you are a meat eater. You love your meat. Um, do you um, only get like grass-fed meat and stuff like that? Because do you think there's you know chemicals and all of that in our meat as well? Because that's one thing that I'm really mindful of. I read this article the other day and I heard that they're putting like mRNA into the lab stock. I don't even. I'm not even going to go there about mRNA because I don't really know enough about it. But, I mean, I know it has something to do with the vaccine, vaccination, blah, blah. Um, I don't know. It's 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 wild. I guess you do want to know you're the person who's, is, like you said, get as close as you can to the source of where you're getting your food. But um, 
yeah, do you have any thoughts on people that are strictly like no meat, vegetarian, vegan? Do you think it has really negative health effects overall? Yeah, so in regards to that mRNA, I've had a few people um, approach me, I guess, through Instagram asking me about it because they'd heard things, but I honestly haven't even looked into it, so I can't really comment. Yeah. But if it is true, who knows what the like the implications of that would be on health and livestock. Um, but in regards to diets and whether people are consuming only meat, consuming no meat, I think if anyone follows me on Instagram, they would already kind of know my answer to this. But I think a lot of people will choose a vegetarian, vegan diet. I was vegan once as well. Um, people will choose these diets because of religious re reasons or ethical reasons. You know, they don't want animals to die. And I get that, although we could kind of talk about the fact that monocropping agriculture is actually killing a lot more animals than what normal farming is. That's yeah. a whole other can of worms. But, yeah. you know, I get the ethical side of things to a certain degree, but you need to remember that if you're, well, this is my stance and I'm sure a lot of other people's as well, but if you're under the impression that going vegetarian or vegan is a healthier choice and you're doing it from a nutritional perspective, then it's just simply not true. So vegan diets in particular are almost completely devoid of certain nutrients that are crucial for our human bodies to live and thrive and survive. And deficiencies, the issue is deficiencies can take months or years to develop. So if someone's been eating a standard Western diet and then they say, okay, I'm going to jump on this vegan movement, this vegan bandwagon, and they eliminate all of the rubbish food that they were consuming, McDonald's, KFC, all of that sort of stuff, even though I guess they have a lot of vegan options now. But generally people will feel really good in the beginning because they've cut out all the crap. But then it's the months and years down the track when these nutrient deficiencies start to develop that it becomes a huge problem. And more often than not, the nutrient deficiencies are easily missed because they're not routinely tested in primary care settings. The testing that you'll get from the standard doc, like your standard GP, is not going to be as detailed as what you'd want it. And it's usually not until the symptoms start happening that sometimes there's irreversible damage. Like, for example, with vegan diets, you're deficient in B12, then that can become a pretty serious issue. But it's not until these symptoms develop, which can happen months and years later, that it's already a huge problem. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you can be deficient in B12, calcium, iron, zinc, protein in general, your omega-3 fatty acids, fat-soluble vitamins. The reality is is that if you want nutrient-dense food, you yeah. need to eat animal, animal products. Yeah, it's so interesting. It's so, so interesting because I was vegan, vegetarian for a while as well, and I can relate to that. Like in the beginning, you're like, I feel so good. And then, yeah, after a while, you kind of just become, I just remember I had like the worst brain fog. I was really moody, really, yeah. you know, had really poor ability to deal with um, stress, like, which is like abnormal for me. I mean, who really deals well with stress? But I mean, you know, I was just had an inability to cope with it. And it came down to being, yeah, super deficient in all of these, um, you know, vitamins that you were discussing. And can you explain why it takes so long I mean, I kind of know, but I mean, for people who don't have a base, like kind of understanding of nutrition or the first time hearing about it, why do some of these symptoms take so long to, you know, show up as being an issue? Yeah. So some of these vitamins um, are basically fat soluble, meaning that they store, we store them in our body. Yeah. Um, and if 
you know, you're cutting them out of your diet and you're not getting that intake source, then the reduction of those stored vitamins can take months, sometimes years, to basically decrease. So then the symptoms can take, um, you know, longer to develop down the track as well. Plus the body is always trying to kind of keep you alive. So it's going to do as best it can to, you know, with little as what it's got in regards to what you're consuming. So it can just take a while for things to kind of develop. Yeah. It's really hard to eat an adequate nutritional diet being vegetarian, probably a lot easier than a vegan. But if you're a vegan, trying to just cover all your nutritional basis it's so hard. It takes time. It takes effort. You've got to make sure you know what you're doing. You've got to make sure you know how to food combine. And more often than not, I would always recommend if you are vegan, supplement, get regular blood tests, work with someone that knows how to interpret those blood tests because yeah. doctors won't be looking at optimal levels. They'll be just be looking at levels within range. So there's yeah. lots to it. There is lots to it. I feel like a lot of the time when I get blood tests, the doctor's like, oh, good. And I'm like, impossible. Like I literally feel like that is impossible. Like, please, like tell me there's something going on. They're like, oh, yeah, your iron's fine, your this is fine. I'm like, it just cannot be. Yeah, so you definitely want, like, I guess I found nutritionists, naturopaths, they kind of look at things on a, on a bit of a different scale. They're not like, okay, you're surviving. It's like, well, how can you be kind of maybe more so thriving? Like it's great that you're exactly. okay, but like how can you be feeling better? Yeah. And the reference ranges are so inaccurate to optimal health they're like they're like severe it's like it's like you're either just about to die pass out or you're fine like that's their barometer for whether things are all good or not you know yeah yeah the reference ranges this is the thing and people have to remember this is that reference ranges are determined via sick people mostly because they're getting the they're basically getting the averages from all the people that are getting blood tests and who are the people that are getting blood tests, sick people. And then you've got to see and look at how the reference ranges have basically moved and shifted over time. And they're getting bigger and bigger because the population is getting unhealthier and unhealthier people. You know, the incidence of diabetes is um, massive. People are getting um, more and more overweight. So then the reference ranges are shifting based on that. So you've got to also take that into account. Yeah, it's 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 huge. It's a it's a big one. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that. I um I also want to touch on, I guess I feel that, you know, I like how you're pretty you keep it really basic in terms of how you would set up um, you know, like a nutritional diet the information that you put out it's like well you know we need a plus b to you know get to where we want to be you know it's quite simple but i do feel like social media obviously is huge we know this everyone's on social media i've been on instagram they're on tiktok blah 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 so much misinformation out there there's always new trends coming out um you know fasting not to fast yeah it's a bit much you know what i mean it's like it's a lot you just are like what do I do? And I think a lot of people um, do struggle with that. So what would be your advice in terms of, you know, setting up a nutritional lifestyle for yourself, you know, people who don't really know anything about nutrition, what, what would you, what's your approach? 
I'd say go and see a nutritionist. <laughs> but um, it's the thing is, is that you're so right. There's so much information out there. It's extremely overwhelming. It's why I started studying nutrition myself because I was looking at all the research and I'm like, well, what's right and what's wrong? And at the end of the day, whatever your whatever you want to kind of do, you'll always find evidence to support that. There's always evidence to support anything. But at the end of the day, you need to work out what's right for you because while there's keto and carnivore and vegan and fasting and all the diets that are out there, what works for someone isn't going to work for someone else and every person is so biologically different. So yeah. you really need to work out what works for you. But at the end of the day, I would go back to basics. People always think it's so hard to know what to eat purely because there's so much information out there. Yeah. You get told that, you know, gluten's going to destroy your gut, but then someone else will be like, gluten's fine or this and that. And it's, it's just there's so much information out there. But go back to basics. Go back to eating unprocessed real food start with that and then see how you feel start adding in something else and see how that kind of impacts how your health feels just go back to basics eating real food yeah that sounds really really like it's simple but it just it makes sense because it's you know i see you know i chat to a lot of people in in real life and you talk to your friends and stuff like that and they're like you know i've just been feeling horrible i'm gonna I'm going to cut out this. I'm, I'm not going to do this. And it's like this really, you know, extreme just kind of approach to nutrition. It's like, well, hang on, maybe just eat normal first. Because yeah. like, you're eating normal to begin with. Like you've been drinking every week and so blah, 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 blah. It's like I think there's like if we think about it on a spectrum, like everyone kind of I, I feel like a lot of people go one end of the – the pendulum swing and they're like all the way up here and they're like, I've cut out this, I'm vegan, I'm this, I'm this. And it's just like, you know, your body eventually is going to want to come into some equilibrium. Like you've got to hang out in the middle for most of your life. Like you can't be doing this. I'm completely nowhere. I'm just drinking every weekend. I'm going berserk, eating whatever I want to slip into. Now I'm like just having a green juice, you know. Yeah, exactly. And it just comes down to the basics. Just eat real food and then go from there. Yeah. Do you, what are the, I, I mean, I think it's interesting. We know the effects of alcohol and all of that are horrendous on the body. We know that it's, it's bad for the liver and, and all of those things. Do you ever drink like occasionally or do you have you cut it out completely from your diet altogether? So I'm pretty much alcohol free. I'm very much on the stance that alcohol is a toxin. It's the truth. Alcohol is literally a toxin. You're putting a toxin into your body and your body has to then work really hard to eliminate that toxin. And then, like you said, it has knock on effects with the liver and your gut health and your mental health massively as well. Huge. Nutrient depletion. Why that is like what, why alcohol affects your mental health so bad? Because I've been saying this to my, I don't, I don't drink that much, but even if I have like one or two drinks the next morning, I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't feel good. Yeah. Well, it causes damage to the gut and whatever happens in the gut, the gut and the brain have a connection through the gut brain access. So basically whatever you're doing in the gut, if you're damaging it, that's going to have a knock on effect to inflammation within the brain. And then that can lead to you, you know, after you have a big night drinking and the next day you just feel really anxious or depressed or just horrible but then also it affects our cortisol levels as well so if you're drinking even just 
the standard amount of drinks a week, that has an effect on your cortisol, which is basically our stress hormone. Right. That will have shifts and changes in that that will impact you on the days when you're not even drinking. So you won't be able to tolerate stress as well on days when you're not drinking because you were drinking on other days. There's huge impacts that alcohol has. I, I think the last time I um, drank was in March because I went up to Airlie Beach with my roommate for our birthdays. But then before that, it was probably another year and a half since I drank before that. I just don't like, I don't really like the feeling of being drunk anymore. I definitely had a past where I was partying a lot, but I don't like the feeling of being drunk anymore. And I just don't like the after effects. It takes me four or five days to recover and for me to come back into my equilibrium and feel okay. Because the few days after, I just feel horrible. My training suffers, my mental health suffers, my gut. It's just as horrible. Yeah, everything. It's, it's amazing. And I think, um, yeah, it's interesting that like you mentioned how it affects your cortisol levels and your ability to, um, you know, just deal with day-to-day stresses. And I feel like you kind of, I don't know, everyone's lifestyle is different, but I feel like you get to a point where it's like, no, I need to be at like 100%. Like I need to be dealing with these issues at work at my top level. Like I can't yeah. be just drinking on the weekend and then being like, oh, well, like let's see how the week goes. It's like you just, I think, get to a point where you're like, you just can't you just can't do that to yourself anymore. It's almost like self-harm, like mentally, yeah. physically. And it's, yeah, and it's so ironic because people, a lot of people will drink because they're stressed. They use it as a way to de-stress, but it's actually causing you to not be able to deal with stress in normal life, even though you're doing it to de-stress. It's really ironic. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's huge. It's really interesting. Can you touch more on, I guess, the gut and the brain connection? Because I feel like that's probably what most of your work is, is, is based on, like you mentioned, you know what I mean? Like, because it comes down to your hormones, you know, mental health, all of that. Can you give me? Yeah, yeah. So there's a huge link between the gut and the brain. So like I said, through the gut brain axis. So we often see them as two kind of, I guess, separate things, but they do definitely connect to each other so it's through something called the vagus nerve Mm -hmm. and basically whatever is going on in your gut and how your gut health is will determine how your mental health is because if there's basically if the integrity of the gut is compromised then that causes issues with the immune system it causes issues with your neurotransmitter synthesis which is basically your brain chemicals so you need a really good amount of them And for them to be functioning properly, you know, your serotonin, your dopamine, all that sort of stuff. And a lot of that is actually produced in the gut. So if your gut healthy is horrible, then you're not going to be producing those neurotransmitters. A lot of your immune system is within the gut as well. Um, A lot of your immune cells, and then that's going to get impacted. Um, But, yeah, it basically is just a massive connection between the gut and the brain. So if one is inflamed, the other one is inflamed. There's this whole talk on, um, you know, is depression depression or is it a symptom of inflammation whoa that's wow that's amazing yeah and our gut bacteria has such a huge impact on the entire health of our body including our mental health so if you're negatively impacting that through poor diet stress will negatively impact that then that's going to have a knock-on effect to your mental health as well yeah, that's huge. That's really interesting. I feel like anytime you learn, like if you study health, you learn about health. The first one of the first things you learn is that 
you know, inflammation is illness, you know. Anytime there is illness in the body, there's something that is, there is inflammation. Um, yeah. God, to even like, I don't know, it's fascinating to even be able to relate that to the gut and, and depression. Um, I think, yeah, we're still, I think even myself, I'm still coming around to the fact that I'm like, oh, wow, like everything kind of links up, you know. I don't know. It's not that amazing, really, when you think about it, when you have these conversations, it makes sense. But um, I guess we're so used to compartmentalising parts of ourselves and yeah. our life. And, um, yeah, do you feel, do you sense a shift coming with kind of the clients that you're seeing? Have you sensed that there is a bit more of a shift into looking at the body this way? Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you, in terms of social media as well, um, do you feel, I, I personally can see that, or maybe it's just the people I'm following and like the algorithms feeding me what I'm seeing, but I do feel like there is a shift to people kind of wanting to cut out the crap for lack of better yeah. word. And people are like, hang on, just it, an, an opinion isn't fact. Like I feel like there is a shift coming towards that. What's your take? Yeah, so I think there's definitely a huge shift. And once again, I follow mostly health pages, so I probably yeah. see a lot of that. But I mean, I get a lot of people, the thing is I do get a lot of people coming to me because they <clears throat> are basically at rock bottom. They've kind of tried every other avenue. Doctors, specialists aren't helping them anymore and then they've come to me. Wow. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of like I still feel like there's a massive amount of improvement we can do, but I definitely think that in the natural health space, in complementary medicine, in treating things holistically, I think there's definitely a lot more awareness to that. And I really think that's where social media has had a really positive impact. Yeah. But I still think that there's <clears throat> a long way to go. And a really big example of that is sometimes I'll need clients to get blood tests done yeah. and I'll get them to go to their GP the GPs won't test anything because GPs will only test, you know, it's not really their fault. They can get in trouble for over-testing. And if there's no medical reason as to why they need to get a blood test, then, you know, if they don't see any specific symptoms or something on a previous blood test, it hasn't showed that they're out of reference range or something like that, although it's not optimal, yeah. then they'll just deny doing repeat retesting. Yeah. So I think that there's a huge need for that sort of space to also shift to more awareness but mm. i think we're definitely stepping in the right direction yeah because that's what i was going to ask you i guess what level do you think that that shift needs to occur at in order to to keep the ball kind of rolling and i guess it does need to start from that that interrelationship between the gp and and alternative health um there are plenty mm. that i feel um dabble in it a little bit like they will liaise with um you know complementary medicine and, and try to work together but yeah it does really need to happen at that at that upper upper level i guess because i've had the same instance occurring with myself as well i was like oh yeah i want to get a blood test and she was like oh absolutely not and i was like oh okay i don't know how else to mm. test um yeah interesting yeah I feel like there's a little bit of, I guess, an elephant in the room when that kind of situation comes up because a lot of GPs, I think, really turn their nose down to a lot of complementary health practitioners. But I really think that that's what we are. We're complementary health practitioners. And I think it's so important if we really do want society to improve in their health, I think it's so integral for complementary medicine practitioners and 
general practitioners to work together and help people in their health journey because I think the synergistic nature of the both of us working together is what we really need for the best possible health outcomes. Yeah, very powerful. It would be very powerful. Can you just imagine, like, you go to your GP and they're like, oh, well, maybe let me, let me, I'll give you, like, two nutritionists to chat about that. Because they would never talk to you about nutrition at the GP. And I I get it. It's like a completely different system, like nothing on the GPs. It's just, you know, the way that they have to go about their work in order to kind of get things done. It's it's a bit, uh, there's not a lot of wiggle room for them. But, I mean, um, yeah. Yes, not. Well, they'll send you to a dietitian, which, I mean, there are some great holistic type dietitians out there, but I've seen a lot of like clients. My mother works in a hospital. I've seen a lot of um, nutrition advice given out that is definitely, I would say, not in the best interest for a lot of patients' health. Oh, but, yeah, health. yeah, absolutely. Like I think even um, um, I, was, I was chatting with, a lady the other day and she was a couple of weeks post-op and she was chatting to me about you know the diet that they had her on and I just kind of made no commentary because I was like this is not the time or place but I was like what like that's insane like the type of food that they had her on was like pretty like high sugar pretty processed food um and it's kind of scary I'm like whoa like that's really what you know that's where it's at still like that mm. is pretty poor but yeah and you can even sorry go no 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 i'm done (laughs) yeah i was gonna say you can even go into hospitals and like look at the food that they're giving their patients i mean of course a lot of it comes down to a money aspect and a time aspect but cereal for breakfast is standard and i'm just it's you know it's the one of the worst things you can do for your health but people are in there to get better it just doesn't make sense to me no, it doesn't make sense at all. I think, yeah, I think people have come to terms with, unfortunately, hospitals and all of that. It's like a sick system, you know, they're kind of, yeah, it's like people are at, at kind of, they're, they're absolutely not well. It's not at a point of trying to, like, maintain health. It's just, you know, you're not well. How can we just give you medicine, kind of get you out of the hospital and then and, and get from there? But um, I saw your Instagram I think it was a reel on weed killer in Weepix. And I was like, oh my, what is this? Because I feel like a lot of the times I'll see, like, especially about the filtered water, the wheat bits, like, I'm like, whoa, like, yeah. mind blown. Because they're things that you're just like, oh yeah, fine. I was like, oh no, this is not good either. Like, can you tell, tell the people? Yeah. So, and it does definitely stir the pot when I put up things like that because wheat bix is obviously an Australian favourite <laughs> and majority of cereals, you know, cereal for breakfast is a standard thing that a majority of people will eat. So I guess crushing their cereal world, people can get a little bit irritated with that. But yeah, the main issue in terms of the weed killer in cereals is glyphosate. Okay. So I did mention it earlier, but to really get into the glyphosate issue. So like other herbicides as well as residues from pesticides, glyphosate is something that we're using as, uh, it's known as Roundup, and I think there's some other um, names for it, but it was invented in the 1970s to kill weeds. Mm. And its metabolites can actually make their way into, obviously it's in our food because it's sprayed in our soil, in our waterways, and that's why I was talking about the whole tap water. Um, you know, foods made with treated crops, meat and dairy, livestock, 
it even shows up in our urine. So one of the functional tests I can do as a practitioner is to actually test for glyphosate levels within the body. Um, so the issue with it is that human um, epidemiological studies have found correlations between glyphosate exposure and increased risk for kidney failure, fertility problems, cancer, birth defects and more. And while those sorts of studies can't determine causation alone, mm. the results kind of give pause and move, like motivate further research to be investigated in regards to glyphosate's impact on health. But the issue is that it actually targets how it works in mm. killing off pests is it targets enzymes that produce certain amino acids, so certain proteins. Yeah. But the thing is, is that those sorts of protein pathways we actually have in our gut bacteria. So while they found that that specific pathway that glyphosate works on um, impacts bacteria, algae, fungi, they did originally find that it wasn't found in animals. So therefore glyphosate was basically considered safe and non-toxic for humans, yeah. but it was overlooked that in fact, that pathway, and I think it's called the Shiktami pathway. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Yeah. It's actually present, like I said, in our gut bacteria, which plays vital roles in development, the immune system and overall health. So the issue is that is that it's found one, it was said that it was a potential carcinogen. So potentially causes cancer. Yeah a gut microbiome disruptor and an endocrine disruptor, meaning it messes with our hormones. And then there's basically that knock-on effect that glyphosate is now sprayed in, you know, onto most of our foods. It's in all our non-organic cereal products. And there's such a huge rise in autoimmune conditions, allergies, gut yeah. problems, food sensitivities. So what's the driving factor here? Damage to our gut microbiome by potentially glyphosate. Wow. Yeah. That is huge and so, so relevant because I do feel like, as you said, there is a huge um, rise in autoimmune diseases, um, autoimmune disease, allergies, and infertility are three main things that I hear a lot about. Yeah. I, when I'm chatting when I've been chatting to kind of clients and stuff like that and, you know, going through their medical history, I'm like, whoa, very massive, massive, massive increases in all of that sort of stuff. And um, not to get into the whole, I guess, autism debate, because that's a very big can of worms in itself, but yeah. the rise in autism rates since glyphosate's been produced has been also insane and once again correlation doesn't equal causation but all of these compounding factors are basically just a big kind of indication that we really need to take a step back and think what are these chemicals actually doing to our health and what are they going to do and what are the implications for future health future generations you know we just mm. spraying stuff and popping chemicals into the air and plastic so everywhere and all that yeah. Air pollution is crazy, but what are these things doing to our health and how is what's our future going to look like, you know? What is our future going to look like? Yeah, it's really interesting and it's a, it's a very huge kind of, it is a huge question because I think we're still in the space of not really thinking about the longevity of things. Like I do feel like there's this element of people, especially like younger 
um, people that are like, yeah, I don't really care. Like, I'm fine now. So it's like, whatever, you know, as long as it's convenient, I'm fine now. But I think, you know, if we can educate like you are doing and putting out information that's really approachable and easy for people to understand, it's a little bit more digestible. And I guess it brings things back down to earth. Like, these aren't just hypotheticals and like scare tactics. It's like, well, no, like, let's actually, let's make some more informed choices. And I guess, I guess you can only really like water your own garden. Like it's hard to really go straight to the government sector and be like, we need to change this, this and this. But yeah. I guess as people, um, you know, in our day-to-day lives, if you can just make small little choices that may seem somewhat meaningless, um, I guess it all adds up because at the end of the day, these big corporations need to give the people what they want. And if people don't want certain things anymore, um, a shift to happen i guess for sure 100 100 very interesting i have let me see i have a few more questions for you oh i did want to ask you i did want to ask you what would you say do you ever recommend any natural forms of contraceptive to your patients natural forms of contraception yeah so i do i do touch on the fertility awareness method with my clients which i think is a very empowering choice for women to make to tune in with their natural cycle to understand when they're fertile um and just yeah to really understand their hormones and how everything's working i definitely touch on the fertility awareness method for sure yeah so just essentially like tracking your period understanding when you're ovulating yeah so it's basically the fertility awareness method is really based around basal body temperature so we will have temperature fluctuations throughout our cycle so when we ovulate temperature will rise so you get an indication as to when you're ovulating so you know when you're kind of in your fertile window which the medical world has kind of assumed that i put a blanket statement on all women usually will ovulate on day 14 of their cycle which is not true there's definitely room for movement and a lot of women will ovulate on different times so those period ovulation estimator apps can be very wrong and that's why a lot of women will still get pregnant even though they said they've been tracking their cycle you've got to tune into your own body and understand where your ovulation lies month to month which can change month to month Mm -hmm. but then also it's focusing on looking at cervical mucus changes to really determine ovulation so throughout our month as females our cervical mucus will also change Mm -hmm. and around the time of ovulation the consistency is more like a raw egg white kind of thin um, mucusy kind of consistency so that along with the temperature rise is a great indication that you've ovulated and then you've got to understand that sperm can survive in the vagina for up to five days so you've got to really be careful five to six days prior to that ovulation as well so it's really just about tuning in and understanding what goes on hormonal wise and what's really going on with your cycle month to month yeah very interesting and crazy how much um i feel like it's only in my 20s that i started like clicking onto these things when really i mean we should have been kind of given these this information like a lot earlier on but yeah i know right i was never taught any of that in high school i don't know about anyone else but i was <laughs> i had never got told that my you know check your cervical mucus and you could track your temperature it was just like if you have sex you may get pregnant if you have yeah. period issues go on the pill if you don't want to get pregnant go on the pill yeah and you just go okay yeah cool and then yeah. you know that's yeah not really appropriate for everybody um now just to circle back 
last kind of segment. Um, people that are struggling with skin, with acne, it's a hard kind of question because I guess it is so broad. It does depend on so many different elements. Yeah. You know, stress, gut, like you said, um, hormones. Um, are there any particular diet or nutritional advice that you would just say is a generally good thing to do, generally bad thing to do for skin? I know there's, yeah, there's a lot of in between. See a nutritionist if you have skin issues, but. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, skin health is often very multifaceted. There are so many moving parts Mm -hmm. and it's not always just diet, although diet plays a huge role in gut health and usually the cause of all other issues relating to acne and skin issues stem from the gut. So it's very much, you know, stems from and correlates to that. In terms of diet, If someone was coming to me for acne, the first thing we would do is really just try to ensure that they're, one, eating enough in general. So you've really got to look at basics with nutrition for this stuff. And like you said, there's so many other things you can look at. You can do like stool tests. You can do hormonal tests. But going, you know, before you poo in a cup, go back to basics and have a look at what you're eating. So are you eating enough? because that's going to impact skin massively. Are you in a state of depletion? So many women under eat because, you know, they feel this need that they need to be skinny. Some people go vegan, so you're in nutrient depletion more often than not. Some women just forget to eat because they're, or people in general just forget to eat because they're so busy. But the skin will be the last organ that will receive nutrition because, you know, your vital organs need to kind of survive first before the body's like, okay, let's go take care of the skin. So if you're deficient, in essential nutrients that are really important for skin health, like zinc, vitamin A, omega-3s, protein in general, then that's going to massively impact how your skin looks and, you know, the health of your skin. So you've got to look at that as a basic. And then I said protein, but protein is probably one of the biggest things I see so commonly with clients that majority of people are so deficient in protein. And our protein is essential for our skin because our skin is made of protein and fat. And people, you know, if you're eating cereal for breakfast or a lot of people run out of the house and grab a couple of pieces of toast and maybe put some peanut butter or something on that and then they might have a sandwich with a little bit of meat in it for um, lunch and then their snacks might be a piece of fruit and then their dinner they might have like a nice slab of meat. But overall that's extremely deficient in protein. And the issue that you also have with that is that your diet ends up being quite carbohydrate heavy. So if we have a lot of carbohydrate within the diet, a lot of sugar within the diet, that then leads to increases in insulin, blood sugar, insulin, and that is a huge driving factor for acne um, because it basically increases something called IGF-1, it's insulin-like growth factor, and that basically causes a knock-on effect of making all these inflammatory chemicals be released from the body. So basically you want to look at making sure you've got enough protein, making sure that you're eating in general enough food and food that's very nourishing, um, enough protein, yeah, low sugar, drinking enough water because, you know, you want to make sure that you have enough water to help your digestive system run smoothly because you want to make sure that you're actually pooping every day because the skin is another detoxification system. So if you're not 
pooping every day, you're not passing a stool, then your stool will sit in your large bowel. You'll start to reabsorb all the toxins and hormones and things that it's trying to excrete. And then your body will be like, well, I'm going to go through my other elimination process and that's via the skin. So there's lots of different things that you can do nutritionally that are going to really impact the state and the, yeah, the health of your skin for sure. So there's definitely things that you can do, but also you've got to look at, you've got to do a deep dive into gut health for sure. That's huge. Yeah, that's amazing. So I guess people who are kind of struggling with acne, recommendation, go to a new, uh, nutritionist. But, yeah, it's really good to have kind of some, you know, you know, idea of the multiple things that are, uh, that are factors contributing um, to the skin. Do you ever put your clients on kind of calorie, um, like, what's the word? Like macros, like make them count macros. Yeah, you know, make, make them count macros or like make them count their calories. Like if that's a client's choice, do you ever think that's a good route to go on or do you, are you more like just eat uh, intuitively? I'm, uh, it changes depending on the client. Like you said, it's more so their choice. I don't really deal with a lot of, um, I guess, weight loss, macro counting clients these days, but I think macro counting can go one of two ways. It can be very detrimental to some people if they tend to obsess over it. Yeah, right. It's quite stressful and some people just don't have the time to do it. Yeah. Other people, it's really good for them to, I guess, do it for a month or a few weeks just to get a general understanding of how many calories certain foods have, what 30 grams of protein looks like in a meal because that's what you want to be aiming for with breakfast. So I think it's good to get an overall basis, but you do have to be careful in terms of just making sure that someone's not going to obsess over it too much. But at the end of the day, I don't really give any kind of um, macro suggestions or counting calories the majority of my clients, other than I guess kind of showing them palm size, what 30 grams of protein or how much protein they should be having with each meal and things like that. It's more about, I guess, eyeballing, if it's just an easier route for majority of patients, clients. Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. No, that's amazing. That's great. That's a lot of a lot of like gems. So many things that I feel like we could have kept digging into. Um, yeah, very, 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 very interesting. I feel like I've learned a lot today. Um, I know you have like an ebook. Do you have? Um, and then and your Instagram. I'm going to pop her Instagram um, down below if anyone's interested in working with Jackie. Yeah, yeah. So I've got my Instagram, Better Than Bread. It's what I'm known as. Um, my website's getting redone at the moment, but that's going to be up soon with all my information on there about how you can book in a consult. And I do have a few ebooks in um, the mix coming up, which I'm going to release. One of them being how to properly come off the pill if you've decided to do that. So that's going to be a good one. That's so exciting. Yeah. But yeah, if you want to reach out, just message me on Instagram. Yeah, when are you launching that um, ebook on the coming off the pill? Hopefully, in the next couple of months, once my website's back up and running, which that should be back up and running within a month. So it's basically just need to. I've got all the information. I just need to put it into a nice Canva document and get it all ready. Yeah, that's so exciting! I'd love to have you back on the potty, and we can just talk all about um, the contraceptive pill in your ebook, and you can um, give a bit more information on that. That would be so yeah, cool. I would love that. That's awesome. Um, but yeah, I'll pop all the details down below. Um, that was really informative. And I guess if you want to take a deep dive on your own nutrition, 